Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to our service here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Good to see you all come out and gathering together here to worship. It's such a privilege and a blessing that we have. Such a good few songs leading into the service here. Thank you, Alan and Matthew. Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn. Very fitting for our series in First Peter here, as we continue to look at the suffering and the trials and hardships that the church, early church faced, and definitely that we as well continue. But we have a sure and steady anchor. And I pray that today as we work through our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to 17, that we will see Christ as our anchor, that we'll see this hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and the, and, uh, the gospel message that we proclaim as a church and as believers and the hope that it carries to encourage us as we face these storms. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Having described the proper conduct in our previous few sermons in in, uh, 1 Peter, in relationships, different uh, relationships that we see in society, in marriages, as well as in the church. Peter now turns more specifically to the subject of suffering, a subject that we have addressed numerous times already as we are journeying through this epistle. But it is a, a subject that now specifically he turns to, having laid down a lot of the other uh, imperatives, the indicatives that we've discussed, the statements of truth that, that the church faces, and then how to respond, how to react in these areas. The first recipients of this epistle, the letter that Peter's writing, they were experiencing or would experience persecution. It's evidence throughout this letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 4, verses 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Then in verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So persecution causing suffering will come at the hands 
of sinful men as well as we saw by the schemes of the devil. This is our expectation. This is what we can expect living in a world that is tainted and corrupted by sin, in a fallen society, in a fallen universe. We can expect those hardships, those trials. There are times when Satan will make every effort to bring harm to those who follow the will of God. We remember Job and what he endured in the book of Job. And we will address that, touch on that a little bit more towards the end of the sermon here. But we must remember early on that, as we saw in the book of Job, Satan's ability to harm is only as far-reaching as God allows. That is a comfort that we have. And so with this confidence, how then should we as Christians prepare for suffering, for persecution? How should we prepare to overcome whatever might come our way? And this morning I've entitled our sermon, Suffering Unjustly. And I've divided this text into three points. As you can see on your outline, point number one, suffering for righteousness. Suffering for righteousness. Point number two, giving a defense of the Christian hope. And point number three, suffering the better way. So our text this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, begins with now. This is the Greek conjunction translated as now, which indicates the joining of words or phrases or clauses. In our case, now indicates Peter's continued thought from the previous passage. In our last sermon, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we read, Finally, all of you, speaking to the church, after he's addressed these other relationships, now he's speaking to the church as a whole. All of you have unity of mind, have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. As seen in this portion sermon that I entitled Living a Godly Life, we saw the instruction there. But this helps us in our verse today to understand what this good is that we are to be zealous for. In verse 13, Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So Peter's continuing this thought from that portion of Scripture in which he lays out those instructions for godly living, how we are to live with one another, not repaying evil for evil, not returning reviling for reviling. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? MacArthur comments on this passage, The good refers generally to a life characterized by generosity, unselfishness, kindness, and thoughtfulness towards others. Such a lifestyle has a way of restraining even the hand of the most ardent foe of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God in the day of visitation. So we see the result of living honorably amongst the people and how that conduct will impact the way people view us. Romans chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. If you're hung, if you're hungry, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we see this good living and the impact that it has on the culture around us, even those who oppose the gospel. Peter's general statement here, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? We see that impact in society. We see the Apostle Paul reiterating this thought as well. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Second Corinthians chapter nine, starting in verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So here we see again Paul's instruction to how to live in society, the generosity and the care for those around us, and the impact it'll have on people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, 9 and 10, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. One more passage in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, 
As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. So we see the continued and clear instruction for doing good. Doing good. Good behavior. Being zealous, as Peter puts it, for what is good. We are to reap good from the Spirit, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, not corruption from the flesh. These two are contrasted for us in chapter 5 of Galatians 16, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we see the contrast that Paul will lay out for us here. The works of the flesh, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we see the continuity of the New Testament in providing a picture of what living a good and godly life looks like. That the fruit of the Spirit are evident in the lives of believers and of those who claim Christ as their Savior. To those who bear the title, a child of God. Living good should be a goal. Living good should drive us in all of our conduct in our in the society, not just in the church, but in our workplaces, in our communities, in all of society. The, the fruit of the Spirit, the good of that should be evident. A godly life is exemplified through us when we as believers pursue unity, compassion, brotherly love, tenderness, and humility as seen in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ought to be gracious to those in need of the gospel and sensitive to the pains and sufferings of those around us, especially to our own brothers and sisters in the church. So this is what Peter has in mind when he asks the question in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are zealous for what is good. To be zealous speaks of the intensity or enthusiasm of one who eagerly desirous of something. One who is eagerly desirous of something. If we pursue that which is good with an eagerness displayed in our previous text as well as those that we have looked at so far this morning, it is then a fair expectation that suffering will be less likely to occur to those who portray goodness to their fellow man. This is a general truth statement. If we pursue patience, kindness, gentleness, if we respond to those around us in this manner, suffering generally will be less likely. But Peter continues in verse 14. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled 
So this indicates that what we just read and what he just stated in verse 13 is what is called a general truism. It's a proverbial statement. It is a statement that carries a weight of truth to it, but it is not a rule. It is not a guarantee. It's like when we read the Proverbs, which is filled with proverbial statements, hence the name of the book. There's a lot of general rules and truisms in that book that we find that if we live by them, life will generally go in this direction. And so likewise, in a statement like this, we see not a hard rule, but a general truism in the statement. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In fact, as we see just in verse 14, Christians should live with an expectation. An expectation of suffering and an expectation of a blessing as a result of the suffering. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, Peter says. So there's a twofold expectation in that phrase. An expectation of hardship, of trials, of suffering in this world, in this life here and now. But the greater expectation of being blessed. A promise from God to us as His people that we will be blessed as a result of unjust suffering. This promise of blessing flows from our previous portion of Scripture. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and I read it earlier, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So we see this pattern of thought that Peter is carrying here as well. How we respond to others, and when they mistreat us, If we respond in a godly manner, the promise of blessing that God then pours on us. When we suffer unjustly for righteousness' sake, we do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, we bless those who curse us. We bless those who revile us. We speak well of those who persecute us. We forgive those who sin against us. Because as Peter stated, to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This blessing then speaks of our divine privilege. The divine privilege we have as children of God and partakers in the sufferings of Christ. But it points us to our ultimate reward. This is the blessing that we focus on. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. So as we endure suffering, as, as hardships and trials mount and overwhelm us and we consider the promise of blessing, what is this blessing? It's not a guarantee that those trials will cease immediately. It's not a guarantee that life will just become easy from that point on. But this blessing points us to our ultimate reward. And in Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 10 and 12 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Look at that wording. The exact wording that Peter uses in his epistle to the church. You will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness sake. 
Matthew says, blessed are you, or Matthew writes, this is Jesus' words in his sermon, blessed are you when others revile you or are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So again, we see the correspondence with what we're reading in First Peter. Matthew 12, our 5 verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. When you're suffering, when you're being persecuted and others revile and slander you, is our first response rejoicing? Or is there a reason why Peter has to so clearly tell us, do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling? That is definitely, I believe, the most natural response that we have. Yet we are told to rejoice and be glad when these things are happening because our reward is great in heaven. So we have this ultimate reward that is waiting This is our blessing. This is the blessing that we have. There are blessings that we also have on this earth while we suffer. Peace, joy, contentment. The way we as believers go through that. I spoke with a man yesterday who just recently buried his first grandchild. And I remember him saying, how do unbelievers do this? How does someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ, how how do they get through this? You see, even in this time of intense pain and suffering, there was a joy that he found in Christ. And that joy we can still have, and that is a blessing that we have because we know the future promise. We know this suffering isn't the end here and now. And so with that joy, we look beyond. And so then we even experience that blessing of our ultimate reward. We experience the fruit of that here today, and it carries us through those times. And because of this promise, Peter continues in verse 14, so then we are to have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. Who? Verse 13, who is there to harm you? Have no fear of them. Because of these promises of Christ, because of this blessing that we are promised, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Christians are not to fear the intimidation of those who cause harm or unjust suffering for righteousness' sake. Nor be troubled. Literally means, do not be shaken. Do not be stirred up. Christian, with the expectation of suffering, 
you must face all circumstances with the courage and grace emboldened by the knowledge that we suffer as Christ suffered. We suffer for a purpose. By the sovereign will of God for sanctification unto maturity in our faith. Our suffering, brothers and sisters, has a divine purpose. It is a purpose that God has orchestrated from before eternity, or an eternity past, sorry, that He has orchestrated for our sanctification, for our maturity unto the faith, ever looking to Christ as our example. Always looking to Christ as our example. We suffer because Christ suffered. We are persecuted because Christ was persecuted. They, the world will hate you because they hated me, says Jesus. So if our suffering and our persecutions are tied to the sufferings and persecutions of Christ, then so our response should be as well. How we respond then should be as well. When we set our minds on things above, when we set our minds on things above, let's turn to Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 3, sorry. Colossians chapter 3, in the first few verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So do we set our minds on things above? When things are well, it is easier to do that. When things are hard and difficult, that also becomes more difficult. But we are told to set our minds on things above. These eternal rewards, these eternal blessings, the salvation that we have, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of God, set your minds on those things, not on the things of this world, not on the treasures of this world either. It's not just on the sufferings and the persecutions and the hardships. We get lost having our minds focused on the things of this world in the good as easily, which would often then lead to suffering. But when we set our minds on the things above, we will rejoice when we must live under sufferings because we see through the sufferings. When we set our minds on things above, we can look beyond our circumstances of here and now and we can see the blessings to be gained. So with the expectation of suffering and the instructions not to fear nor be troubled by those who cause this unjust suffering, Peter now gives us the contrast to being afraid or being troubled. In verses 15 through 16 of chapter 3, we're now in our second point, giving a defense of the Christian hope. 
giving a defense of the Christian hope, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do not fear nor be troubled. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But here's our con- excuse me. Here's our contrast. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So the first priority we have in times of suffering, the first priority that Peter gives us, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. The word translated in our text as honor comes from the same word we get the word sanctify. This means to make holy, to make clean, to render pure, or to regard and venerate as holy. In our context, we are, in our context, we are to honor Christ by setting Him apart as the sole focus of our worship, our adoration, and exaltation. We honor Christ in this manner by setting Him apart as our sole focus. As being the only source of our worship, our adoration, and our exaltation. We exalt Him in this way and we honor Him. And when we look at those who cause harm and suffering, we lose our focus on Christ. If we focus too intensely on our life circumstances, we lose our focus on Christ. We lose our focus on His Lordship over our trials. We lose our focus of His Lordship over our persecutions, our sufferings. Rather, we are to focus our sights on Him, on the eternal blessings again that He has promised, and we honor Him in this manner of worship as we worship Him in His perfection and glory. And with our heart's eye set on Him, we more eagerly submit ourselves to His will and purposes. So when we remove our focus again on the circumstances and we place our focus on Christ, it is an act of worship, but it is an act of worship that produces courage and boldness to face our darkest trials. It produces boldness and courage to face our darkest trials and our deepest sufferings. This is the fuel that carries us through when we hear of the example of of a runner training for a race, the training part is the hard part. The work that gets put in by, by an athlete to become well and to excel in his craft. They physically train and beat their bodies and strain their bodies while keeping their eye on the prize. It is the the prize, the reward that awaits that makes the work worth it. And it is likewise in this, as we focus on Christ, no matter what we endure then here, it becomes worth it. So how does this honoring Christ play out practically? Peter goes on in verse 15. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Honor Christ by explaining the Christian hope when faced with suffering. How does the world respond to suffering? And how does that contrast with the instructions we've received so far? How does the world respond to suffering? When they don't have this eternal hope. They will often turn to man-made religion. They will turn to man-made hopes. They will turn to, to substance, substances and addictions. We have a hope. And we honor Christ by defending that hope. We honor Him in that regard. We respond differently because we have a hope in Christ Jesus. We have hope in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is our hope. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In this hope, this unfading, this undefiled, this imperishable hope, in this we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is the hope that we have. Our ultimate salvation. This hope that we have is this inheritance that is being guarded by God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is the hope that we are to be able to give a defense for. The gospel. In short, this hope, our hope, is the gospel message. It is the good news of salvation. And this spurs us on to godly living. Even in the darkest of nights, we cling longingly to the promise of morning. Even in the darkest of nights, because of this gospel, because of this salvation, we cling longingly to the promise of morning. To whom and how are we to explain this hope? First, Peter says, back in verse 15, to anyone who asks. We are to be always ready with this message of hope because we don't know when or where we may be asked. Our response to suffering will cause others to notice, and in a world devoid of hope, this will be seen as alien and cause others to ask. Give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Second, we are to share this message of hope with the appropriate attitude. Peter instructs in verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Christian attitude matters. 
When we proclaim the gospel of grace, we ought to do so with gentleness and respect and grace. It's contrary to our message if we are ungracious in our proclamation of grace, right? Do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness refers to meekness or humility, not in the sense of weakness, but in the sense of not being dominant or overbearing. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. When Peter says respect or reverence, it expresses a devotion to God and a deep regard for His truth as well as to the listener who bears the image of God. We see this attitude of gentleness and respect as well in Paul's letter to Timothy. Go the right direction. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26, Paul writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we are to do it with gentleness and respect. Thirdly, we are to explain the Christian hope, having a good conscience. A good conscience. Verse 16 of our text, we read, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We are to have a good conscience because we will be slandered. And our good behavior will be reviled. The conscience is defined as the divinely placed internal mechanism that either accuses or excuses a person, acting as a means of conviction or affirmation. The conscience, however, is not infallible, and it is also affected by sin. Therefore, it must be trained. It must be informed by the highest standard of truth, which is God's Word. An improperly trained conscience can lead even the most earnest believer to contrary, or lead them contrary to God's Word. Too often, Christians justify faulty understanding or even obedience or disobedience by the standards of their ill-informed conscience. When our convictions excuse us from following God's Word, because our conscience doesn't allow us, then our conscience is wrong and it needs retraining. Commentator Colin G. Cruz observes this regarding our conscience. The conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God or even the moral law. 
Rather, it is a human faculty which adjudicates upon human action by the light of the highest standard a person receives. Seeing that all of human nature has been affected by sin, both the person's perception of the standard of action required and the function of the conscience are also affected by sin. For this reason, conscience can never be accorded to the position of the ultimate judge of one's behavior. It is possible that the conscience may excuse one for that which God will not excuse. And conversely, it is equally possible that the conscience may condemn a person for that which God allows. The final judgment, therefore, belongs to God. Nevertheless, to reject the voice of conscience is to court spiritual disaster. We cannot reject the voice of conscience with impunity, but we can modify the highest standard to which it relates by gaining for ourselves a greater understanding of truth. End quote. And so since our conscience holds us to our highest perceived standard, Christians must set that standard according to the ultimate source of truth. Again, this is God's Word. Brothers and sisters, you must fill your minds continually with the things of God found in His Word. This is how we train our conscience. By being continually in the Word of God. So that when you face unjust suffering, which you will, you will be able to respond and defend your hope with a good conscience, free from the burden of guilt and uncertainty. This is how we defend our hope, having a good conscience. When we live according to God's Word, when we live according to His standard, and even in the areas where we fail, if we acknowledge those rather than cover them up, if we live without that guilt because of our repentance and having been conversely then forgiven by God, this is how we defend our hope with a clear conscience. When you are slandered or reviled or spoken evil of or threatened, for your good behavior in Christ, your conscience, being informed by God, will affirm your message your acts of righteousness, and in return, those who slander and revile you will be put to shame. The accusations of the world will ultimately be proven false and will prove to be their own condemnation for their treatment of those who are obedient to God's will. The accusations of the world will ultimately be proven false and will prove to be their own condemnation. God will not be mocked, and in His good timing, all unrepentant evildoers will face the eternal weight of His wrath, and God will ultimately vindicate His people and bless them with eternal reward. In this way, they will be put to shame. It is not through mockery, not through reviling uh, in return that they are shamed. It is through our good behavior. It is through our kindness, gentle. It is through the proclamation of the gospel. It is the gospel that condemns their actions, not my feelings. It is not wrong when someone slanders me because my feelings are hurt. It is wrong because God says it's a sin. 
And vice versa, just because my feelings were hurt doesn't mean it was wrong for them to do it. So our standard is God's Word, and that is the standard that will condemn and shame those who practice unrighteousness. This leads us to our last point, suffering the better way. Suffering the better way. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Having a good conscience that is well informed and trained by the Word of God is also important because, as Peter notes in verse 17, not all suffering is caused by faithful adherence to righteousness, but often results from evil behavior. It is very easy to be influenced by our sinful flesh to justify all suffering we face as persecution for righteousness. This is not always so. Our sufferings are still often caused by decisions, actions, and speech that we make that are not in accord with a good conscience. Let us again be reminded of Peter's words in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. We also see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, So you put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And in chapter 4, Verses 12 through 19, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the, and glory, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But, verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter gives us no allowance to categorize our suffering due to bad behavior as unjust. It is specifically suffering for righteousness' sake or due to good behavior in Christ that will produce blessing. We saw earlier under our first point what this good behavior looks like in the life of a believer. And this ought to be our goal, to live good and godly lives in this sinful world, knowing that such a life will at times cause us to suffer due to the world's rejection of His gospel. We referenced Job earlier. In our introduction, I mentioned Job and his suffering and how we see God's control. We would do well to remember 
that the sufferings Job endured were never outside of the sovereign control and plan of God. We see in chapter 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered, and the Lord said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In the next portion we see the loss of his family and possessions. And in verse 20, Job's confession, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In chapter 2, in the first six verses, we see Satan's challenge in heaven again. And the Lord sets the limits of what he is allowed to do. And in verse 7 of chapter 2, we read, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In all of Job's sufferings, we see that God was always in control. Satan was only allowed to go so far as God had allowed, allotted him to go. And even after Job's lament, in chapter 3, verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And he goes on for multiple chapters in his lament. And his friends are with him. And not always in a very helpful manner. But then God responds with a sharp rebuke in chapter, starting in chapter 38. And he goes on for three chapters. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make known to me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the linen upon it? Or who shut out the sea, shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of from the womb? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken from it? We listen to these challenges and this rebuke that God gives to Job. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you entered into the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle? Can you bind the chains of Pilatus or loose the cords of Orion? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? You see, we see such a beautiful, grand picture. And again, this goes on for several chapters we see this picture of God's sovereignty and how He is in control of all things. And we saw earlier the picture that we see in Scripture that Job would not have seen at the time where Satan was challenging God and God gave him boundaries and guidelines. Job aptly responds in verse chapter 42, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Do we endure our trials and suffering with the confidence knowing that God is in control and that He has laid them out for a purpose for us? And do we then find joy in being able to serve Him and worship Him in those times and how we respond in those times to consider that as an act of worship? Our sufferings may at times be so devastating that we do not know how to proceed And we too, like Job, may even lament the very day of our birth. But let us always remember the omniscience and omnipotence of God who loves us. This God who made the heavens and the earth, who spoke all things into creation, He, if you are a child of God, He is your Father. If you have this message of hope, This salvation that Peter spoke of in chapter 1, if this is yours as a child of God and you have repented of your sin and you've turned to Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, then God is your Father and He loves you. And just like an earthly father, when our children suffer and are going through a hard time, we walk with them and we comfort them. 
This is God's heart for us. So let us always remember the omniscience and the omnipotence, the knowledge and power of God who loves us. And as I conclude this sermon on suffering unjustly, I want to close with this quote from Puritan Thomas Watson. Afflictions work for good as they make way for glory. Not that they merit glory, but they prepare for it. As plowing prepares the earth for a crop, so affliction prepare and make us ready for glory. The painter lays his gold upon dark colors, so God first lays the dark colors of affliction. And then he lays the golden color of glory. The vessel is first seasoned before wine is poured into it. The vessels of mercy are first seasoned with affliction. And then the wine of glory is poured in. Thus, we see afflictions are not prejudicial, but beneficial to the saints. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your marvelous, abundant grace and mercy that you have so freely given us. And as we consider again today the suffering the trials that so often comes with living good and godly lives and pursuing a life dedicated to You, Jesus. I pray that today You would give us the hope in each one of our minds and hearts to help us to focus on that hope and to focus on eternity to help us walk through the temporary trials that we face here. Help us to see in view of eternity the temporality of our sufferings here on earth below. We trust in you, Jesus Christ, as all things are made new and that our rest is found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.